I don't think anybody disagrees that much of what we do in schools doesn't comport to common sense. But when we start doing things that actually do <laughs> are about common sense, then a whole bunch of people go, wait, it doesn't look like, it doesn't look like, it doesn't feel comfortable. So that's the tension that I find really interesting. So we've been thinking. So we've been thinking. The podcast. Convenient lies and unpleasant truths. In this episode of the So We've Been Thinking podcast, Sean and I talk with Will Richardson. We explore the prospect of change in schools and what barriers are in place to create meaningful and sustainable change. So first of all, thanks for the invite, guys. Really appreciate it. So uh, I have been in education now for almost 40 years. I was a high school English teacher for 18 years and then worked as a technology director for three uh, and then left to go out and speak and write books and try to figure out the world of education and try to make sense of it. Um, it's been an interesting journey. Started kind of with the whole social media thing um, with blogs and wikis and podcasts and other fun things that I was writing about back in early in the early aughts, I guess they call them. I don't even know what they call them. But anyway, um, and then basically has evolved more recently into asking some bigger questions around what does learning really look like? Is learning really happening in schools? What are the opportunities and challenges for schools in a world that's changed so quickly and so dramatically um, over the last couple of decades? And um, just trying to find the right questions to be asking. I don't in any way claim to have answers to a lot of these questions, but I do think that there are some existential questions that we need to be asking in education right now. And um, my job, I think, is to provoke as much as I can those conversations without making people really mad at me. So <laughs> that's the fine line that I'm trying to live right now. Well, you know, well, one of the reasons that I love reading your work, the questions that you're asking about, like you said, the existential questions about what we should be doing. And in some of your work, I hear this frustration in you that there are things that we know that we have not acted upon, that we have not implemented. So um, maybe you could talk a little bit about some of the things that you think we know better that we should be doing in schools right now. Yeah, I've started calling those things the unpleasant truths. Um, uh, the, that's a cartoon that I found uh, last year that has these two, um, two uh, booths. One of them has uh, a, a sign above it that says convenient lies, and the other one says unpleasant truths, and everybody's queued up for the lies, right? And there's the guy in the uh, unpleasant truth booth is just kind of sitting there bored because no one really wants to hear him. Um, but yeah, so I, I just think that um, there are a lot of things right now that I think are common sense, but for whatever reason, uh, we're in, unable or unwilling to do what's common sense in schools. Um, I mean, I, I think that uh, there's an argument to be made that kids aren't really learning very much in schools. Um, I know I have two kids, uh, they're a little bit older now, 21 and 19, but in their high school years, you know, going through school, I think what they learn most of anything else was how to do school. Um, I don't think they really learned a lot of chemistry or history or, or algebra or Shakespeare or any of that stuff for the long term. I think they learned it for the short term so they could do well at school because they, they figured out pretty quickly how to do that. I think that's an unpleasant truth is that most kids are trying to figure out how to succeed at school, not really um, you know, learn deeply about the things right. that we're trying to teach them. 
I think uh, a lot of the structures of schools don't make a lot of sense. Um, the idea that we silo subjects, the idea that we group kids by age, the idea um, that we try to motivate them by grades. Um, I think grades on their face are a, a pretty bad idea. And yet um, we continue to just employ a lot of these structures that we've had around for a long, long time that were built in order for us to become efficient but weren't built on a real belief system around what learning is. Uh, and I think that's the frustration that a lot of people are feeling now because um, kids by and large living in this time um, who have access and, and you know, who can go out and learn whatever they want, they're not waiting for someone to deliver a curriculum. They're not waiting for a workshop. They're not, you know, they're, they're, they have complete agency with the devices that they carry around. And so there's this growing disconnect between the way learning looks like outside of school and the way that it looks inside of school. And I just think that, um, like I said, I, I, I do really believe that we need to start asking those big heavy duty questions about why are we teaching kids this stuff mm -hmm. uh, in this moment? Why are we grouping them? Why are we organizing um, you know, what we call this thing we call an education um, again, given the time in which we live, and even questions like, what is an education today? Um, mm -hmm. You know, what does it mean to be educated today? What does it mean to be literate today? I think all those things are changing. And I think what we're trying to do is we're, in the words of one of my favorite um, authors, Russell Acoff, I think we're still trying to do the wrong thing right in schools. Mm -hmm. um, and in many ways, um, we got to start having real deep conversations about what's the right thing to do right now. Um, but that's going to require a, a heavy lift intellectually and emotionally. And, and certainly then if we can get through that part of it, then practically it's going to require huge, huge effort and commitment to make those changes happen. This reminds me a lot, Sean, if you remember, we talked to Audrey Waters last week, Will. Yeah. And she was speaking a lot about the idea that there's values essentially like baked into the technology that we're currently using. And a lot of those values are coming from the past of education and the history of ed tech and the developers of certain tools. And it's almost like forcing us down a path of like what classrooms look like with technology, but it's, it's all around, like you were talking about the idea of efficiency, like it's all around being more efficient, like assess faster, um, you know, collect data more practically and these sorts of things. So you talked about this idea of, you know, siloed subject matter, grade level grouping all around efficiency, but not around what we know should actually be happening. So th that leads me to my question of, and I always like to bring this point of what is the what is the classroom teacher to do? Because there's so many obstacles in their way and so many constraints. So we know what it should look like. We know that the world is changing. We know what the impact of technology is, but what, what does the ninth grade biology teacher do? Well, first of all, I really love Audrey's work and she constantly challenges me to think about technology and education, certainly in different ways. And I think she makes a great point that in many cases, um, you know, technology is, is uh, ed tech especially, is just um, cementing a lot of old traditions and biases that we bring to the whole idea of school. And, um, you know, I, I can, and you know this too, I mean, most places that have employed technology at scale really haven't changed much at all. 
and um, at least in ways that they were thinking they were going to change it. And so I, that's a huge conversation that I think is a really important one, just about the idea of ed tech in general and, and how it is motivated by, it's a business and it's motivated by making money. And, you know, it's not necessarily motivated by helping kids learn or giving kids more agency. That's my big thing with tech is that if we're going to give kids devices, we have to understand that we should be giving them agency. Um, we should be allowing them to use those devices in a way that help them develop as learners. But, you know, to your other question about, so what does a classroom teacher do? Well, I think the classroom teacher, A, has to be the most experienced, most, most literate learner in the room. Um, that has to be the expertise now. That's not to say that subject matter expertise isn't important still, if we're going to keep the current configurations of schools, especially. But regardless of whether that changes or not, if you're not a learner now as an adult, if you're not modeling learning in modern ways, why not? Um, it, this, this, it can't be simply about teaching or delivering a curriculum, trying to make it as interesting as we can. Um, it's got to be about a lot of the things that we've always done, hopefully, which is care for kids, hold them in our, you know, hold them in our, our best um, our best care and, and, and make sure that our, their interests are being served. Um, but it's also now has to be, how are we helping kids develop as learners? How are we helping them develop the skills, literacies, and dispositions that in most cases don't end up on any test, anywhere, anytime, but are going to be the things that are going to help them thrive more, more deeply or more, you know, more effectively in their lives? Because it's not about content anymore. It's not about whether or not you remember the Pythagorean theorem when you're 32 years old that you learned when you were in eighth grade. I mean, you know, that's just not what what kids uh, are, are needing uh, today. So I think, you know, classroom teachers, and I, I say this and, and I mean it, um, classroom teachers are important adults and, and human beings in kids' lives. Schools are important places for kids to be. I don't, I'm not in any way suggesting that we get rid of schools or classrooms or teachers. But the roles have to change. The role of the classroom teacher has to be now um, to understand learning at the deepest level that they possibly can and to understand this moment um, contextually as deeply as they can and then to, um, to create conditions in classrooms where kids can begin to develop as learners in powerful ways because Learning is the coin of the realm these days. That's it. Um, you know, Papert has a great quote where he says, the only competitive skill today is the ability to learn. That's it. And um, that's what's really important. So, Will, in, in your book, there's this part of, there's a part of your book that popped up in my head when I was talking to Audrey. Um, you were talking about values, and she said that many of these pieces of ed tech are built around these values that don't represent what we want from our students. Um, and two that she talked of is compliance and this idea of surveillance, being able to observe them. You know? And in that, the, the thought that came to me in my head was that most of the, try an educational technology to get two groups of kids to work together within the same tool that we use, right? Try to merge discussions, try to bring people into the conversations. And it's not about opening them up to the world. Oftentimes it's about like narrowly, like you said, like chunking them together and protecting them in a small environment. But, um, and then along with that in your book, the, the part that came up was the idea that we're, we're trying to be better um, and not do things differently, right? Um, this idea that our, 
so much of what we're trying to do is document scores so that we can come back around again in order to see that there's been improvement in those scores. Um, is there any place that you've seen, or there, is there a place or schools that you've talked to who you think are making uh, moves in the right direction? Like, is there a model that you could hold up for us of someone who's got, kind of got the right idea and has kind of moved forward? Yeah, you know, the irony in this conversation is that, I said this to somebody, I think, yesterday, um, I'm not really into innovation. And the reason I'm not into innovation is that I think most of the innovation that we do in schools is not founded on a real deep understanding of learning, right? I mean, we look at innovation, we think we can see innovation by the technologies that we hand out or by the smart boards at the front of the room or, you know, by how many, how many, you know, networks or whatever we have. But um, the frustration to me is that um, we're building a lot of these things and we're trying a lot of these things in ways that don't honor and don't and aren't really rooted in a coherent belief system around what learning is. So you go from classroom to classroom, that understanding of learning changes. My kids experience this throughout school. They'd go to block one, they'd have to figure out what learning was, they'd have to go to block two, figure it out all over again, block three, because there was no coherence in terms of how people articulated and then lived a definition of what learning is. And very rarely do I go to schools where that's the case. You know, very rarely do I go to schools and ask people, so what do you mean by learning? And they all kind of say the same thing because they've had conversations about it because they've developed some coherence around it. And because then that is what drives practice, right? Everything that they do kind of connects back to that definition or those principles of learning. So a couple of schools that I think are, are doing it in spades. One is Mount Vernon Presbyterian. You probably know of in, in Atlanta, outside of Atlanta, one of my favorite schools. And I'm sure there are a lot of other schools that are doing this, but um, but Mount Vernon has just spent a lot of time trying to get coherent around what they believe, what their mission is, what that looks like, what their norms are. So there's a, a consistency in the experience that kids have from classroom to classroom to classroom. And there's this shared language, this shared experience among teachers, students, parents, leaders. Everybody's kind of on the same page. And look, I'm not saying there's one page here, right? I don't want to in any way suggest that there's one way to do this. But I am suggesting is um, articulate the way that you want to do it. You know, my friend Gary Steger has a great quote where he says, schools get in trouble when they don't know what they believe, when they don't articulate what they believe, and when they don't live what they believe. And I think that there are, there are very few schools that can check all three of those boxes. But Mount Vernon is one because they, they know what it is that they are about and they say it very clearly. They have a, what they call the Mount Vernon continuum, which if you want to go Google it, I mean, it's, it's well worth the time. Um, but they're all living it. Um, and, and I think that's the powerful piece of it. That's, that's where, um, you know, it, it's just this ongoing conversation about learning that I think makes that happen. The other one, just really fast, is a school outside of Melbourne, Australia. It's called Warana Park. Um, and it's a, it's a public school that's in a fairly low socioeconomic area. It's very diverse groups of kids. Um, it's just this very interesting place. But um, they created something that they call their raison d'etre. And basically, it is their mission and vision statement. But what's interesting about it is that they 
spent a lot of time and they continue to spend a lot of time talking about their beliefs around learning. So they've articulated six or seven different principles of learning and they take each one of these principles and they may be things like, you know, we believe that kids learn in social settings where the community is a big part of whatever it is, right? So they'll take that one, and <laughs> this is what's brilliant about this thing, their raison d'etre. They'll take that one belief and then they'll say, okay, if we believe this, then um, assessment has to look like this. Because why would we do assessments that don't align to our beliefs? If we believe this, then our classrooms have to look like this. Because why would we create classroom spaces that don't align to our beliefs? If we believe this, then leadership has to look like this. The organization has to look like this. And so they have a really flat hierarchy because they believe, you know what I'm saying? Yeah. And, and so that's not rocket science. That's not rocket science for people to do that. But for whatever reason, I go to most places and they have mission and vision statements that people have to go on their phones to figure out what they are because they look them up on the website. <laughs> and then they're not being lived at all. It's just kind of, you know, word salad, right? So um, if you, if you want to find schools that are honoring how learning really happens and who are really looking at the world through a modern lens, I think you have to find the ones who are willing to engage in those conversations at a very deep level and figure out, okay, well, this is who we are. And it's not just, you know, it's not just mission and vision. It's mission that's built on, A, what you believe and how you understand the world, right? Those two things. You can't have a, 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 uh, a relevant mission if you're not living in the 21st century, right? So that's number one. Right. Um, you have to understand what the challenges and opportunities are of the world today. And you build your mission on that and what you believe about how kids learn most powerfully and deeply. But then your vision comes from knowing then what's possible to do in classrooms today um, and, and how you achieve your mission by employing your beliefs, like in that raison d'etre, by, you know, just clarifying, well, what does that mean for us then in all of these different ways? So that when you walk into schools like that, you kind of go, oh, okay, <laughs> this is a little different because people are like, they're all, they all know why they're doing the things that they're doing. And, and that's, been, that's become my favorite word of 2018, and that is coherence. And most schools that I visit, um, and, and again, I, you know, I'm not suggesting that we're doing this you know, nefariously or anything. I mean, almost every educator that I meet is well-meaning and wants what's best for kids. But when you look at how practice plays out from classroom to classroom, when you talk to kids and parents and teachers about what's happening in that school, there is an incoherence as to what the goals are, what the practices are, all that type of stuff. And that, I think, is the biggest problem that we have right now. Um, we just, you know, we don't know what we believe, we don't say what we believe, and we don't live what we believe. Um, and uh, I, I don't think it's a, I mean, I, I think it's a fairly easy path to getting to those first two, at least, um, you know, if schools want to take the time to do it, but um, it's a struggle. And um, that's why I, there are very, very few schools that I've been to that I, I think really capture um, the moment in terms of, of, of all those things happening now, happening at the same time. This, this aligns a lot with um, our colleague, 
Beth Holland we had on in a previous episode about school change. And we actually yeah, Beth, Beth was a podcast too. Yeah. Yeah. So Beth got us yep. connected with you. So this is all coming together. And she, <laughs> she talked a lot about the idea of institutionalized isomorphism. That was her, her kind of go-to. <laughs> Which a, is a phrase that we just absolutely love. That's yeah. such a Beth phrase though, you know, I mean, it, it, totally, it absolutely <laughs> is. And so the, the ideas you're talking about, I mean, if, they're not it's not complicated the, the the ideas aren't complicated it's hard work but it's not complicated but beth is suggesting that as soon as a new idea is proposed the school kind of closes in on itself because it's a threat to the institution as it already exists so if it's not the most complicated process in the world to reflect on what you're doing define what you believe in align that to what your vision is have it make sense with kind of what your practice is then why do you think it's not happening if, okay. if, if it's right in front of us and it's possible? So I think, but I, I think, so Seymour Papert had another great quote about that where he said, you know, um, change in schools is met with an autoimmune response, right? That basically, you know, as the organism, we, we push change out to the edges. <laughs> we just try to kind of control it and not let it come to the heart of our work. So uh, I, I agree with Beth to the extent that if you do not do the work of having a, a coherent belief system, an understanding of the world, and an understanding of what, what you know, um, classrooms can be, if you haven't done that work first, that's when I think change fails. Um, because change isn't rooted, again, in, you know, in that foundation. I, I do believe, and I, I can talk about the Peel School Board up in Toronto as an example of this. Peel took about seven years to develop their mission and vision. Um, and now that they are two or three years into implementation, and this is a school board of 150,000 kids, right? So this is a huge undertaking. Now that they're two or three years into the implementation phase, the reason that it's working, and I was just talking to a couple of folks up at Peel the other day, the reason that it's working is because they've got the foundation, they've got that vision, they've got that mission. And so basically, they, when, when the, the system tries to isolate those changes, they go, wait, no, no, no. That's not the system we are. We're this system now. This is who we are. And everybody knows it. They may not all agree with it. They may be in different places in terms of how they feel about, you know, how they feel about it and how, they're, how close they are to actually um, bringing that vision to fruition in their own schools and classrooms. But everybody knows that this is where we're going. This is our North Star. So when practice ends up happening that kind of retreats back to the traditional norm, people go, no, 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 no. That's not where we're going. We're going over here. This is where we're going, you know? And, and so I don't disagree with Beth at all that most change reverts back, but I think it's because um, we haven't done that work. We haven't done that real grunt work to figure out who we are, what we're about, what we believe, and then to, to come up with a clear understanding of the implications of that for our daily practice in classrooms. Um, you're right. I think that that part of it, I think that part of it, Greg, is fairly, in, fair, it is in front of us. It's not intellectually difficult work to do. I don't think anybody who's listening to this is like going, oh, yeah, well, that's really complicated. No, it's not. It's not really complicated. It's very straightforward. But it comes down to then the commitment to to doing it over the long term and to then working in concert 
to change the culture, change the system, change the practice based on that. So why do you think that that work, like the school that you mentioned, is so hard? I think we, 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 we realize, again, I'm swimming in my thoughts because after what you said there, I have like eight things I want to write down and, and, and talk about. But, you know, um, Beth talks about how the best change is that you start small and you get smart really quick, right? You do small changes towards a, a value. And what I see after uh, listening to you talk is that, you know, if you know exactly what you believe in, when you implement those small changes, you can be successful working towards that goal. But what ends up happening is that many of these changes start veering off either towards antiquated old goals or like maybe personal individual goals within a building, you know, and, and it sounds to me like you're talking about schools as systems, like the entire system has to uphold that value. You're never going to make a, a, a real lasting change that's going to affect education. But so the reason it's hard is that it comes back to the first question you asked me. Yeah. Because it's common sense. Mm -hmm. And so much of what we do right now isn't common sense. And so, you know, when you, when you begin to do things that make sense, like there's no reason to grade kids. There's no reason to have grades. But if you start taking grades away, everybody goes nuts. Everybody goes crazy because it just doesn't look like the picture that all of us have in our heads around what school is supposed to be. And this is the, you know, this is the, again, these are, this is the unpleasant truth that uh, many of those unpleasant truths that we kind of carry around with us. And I think, you know, what's been really interesting to me is if I can, if I can, if I can talk about this message, if I can kind of, you know, communicate this message without pissing too many people off at me, right? Because it, it does make, <laughs> them angry. But, but if I can do it, nobody, nobody pushes back. Nobody pushes back when I say grades are stupid. Mm -mm. No, nobody goes, oh, wait, no, we have to. No, nobody says it. Nobody pushes back when you say, why, why is it that we all have all the eight-year-olds over here and all the nine-year-olds over here? And nobody, you know what I mean? I, I don't think anybody disagrees that much of what we do in schools doesn't comport to common sense. But when we start doing things that actually do <laughs> are about common sense then a whole bunch of people go wait it doesn't look like it doesn't look like it doesn't feel comfortable so that's the tension that i find really interesting that i think intellectually we know but practically and emotionally it's just very difficult for us to do the right thing you know again russell acoff right it's harder to do the wrong thing it's harder to do the right it's better to do the right thing wrong than it is to do the try to do the wrong thing right and so we struggle with that. So that's a very, it's just a very interesting tension that I, that I get from a lot of people, most people in education. It was interesting talking with Martin Moran, who's building a brand new school in Chicago. And he was talking about the same thing. If you want to build a, an institution that's going to look and act and be different, you know, um, there's a quote that I have hanging on my board that says, if you want to be an anomaly, you have to act like one. <laughs> and and I was thinking, I, he is trying that. And he said the amount of communication that he has to do with parents, the amount of communication that he has to do with stakeholders, because he has to build a foundation so that they understand what's going on. You're not going to get a grade like you used to. Um, he even said a, a teacher cannot come in and have an idea of what they're going to be teaching in December. They simply cannot because we're not building it on a path where we're setting the path. The students have to discover that path and we weekly will have to reassess what that is. And in his voice was this like nervousness a little bit about 
you know, that's hard for parents, that's hard for a teacher, but we have to be uncomfortable with that instability. It can't be predictable. It's not the factory model that we're going for. It's this opportunity to discover learning and interest. And, and like you said earlier, the agency for students to, to like build a path to education that's meaningful to them. You know? so, yeah, I think anybody who's engaged in this work at a really high level, at a leadership level or whatever else, who's trying to move cultures, trying to move this conversation through a system or a school, has to make sure that they're really good at grief counseling. But I don't say that sarcastically. I really I, mean I know you don't. And, and if, you, if you don't believe me, then you need to read a book called The Emotional Side of School Change by Robert Evans, which is an amazing book that talks about how how difficult this is at an emotional level, right? And, and like I said before, I think most of us in education, given the common sense argument, kind of go, yeah, okay, we, that, we can tap into that intellectually. We can look at that and kind of say, yeah, you know, you're right. Kids, kids probably aren't learning very much if the reason that they're learning or the reason that they're in a classroom is because they just need to pass a test. They're probably, probably not learning for the long term. Um, so we get that. Okay, but now let's change that up <laughs> and let's really make practice different. Well, that changes, if I'm a teacher, changes my whole role in the classroom. I have to, re I have to redefine my value. And damn it, I was a really good classroom teacher. You know what I'm saying, right? And now you're asking me to do something really different, even though I know intellectually that it might be the better thing to do. So it's really hard. And let me just go back and really fast say one thing about small changes too, because this is something that Pam Moran and Ira Sokol and Chad Ratliff talk about in Timeless Learning, which is a great book that they just put out last month. Pam's, you know, former superintendent down in Albemarle, Virginia. They talk a lot about do something, right? Change something, even if it's a small thing. And I don't necessarily disagree with that, but my, my concern is if we don't have a clear mission and vision through which we see that change that we're trying to implement, then you run the risk of somebody changing something and moving in this direction, then somebody changing something small and moving in a different direction. Again, it comes back to small change is great as long as everybody's kind of changing in the same direction, right? As long as there's some coherence around that. So I, I, do, think, I do think that we should start small, but we have to start big in terms of how we contextualize those small changes, if that makes sense. It makes sense in my mind when you're thinking about the idea of values. And, and I think value work is important, but it's also really hard because one, it means that you've got to get people believing the same things and, and valuing those things, which I don't feel like, um, I don't feel like that's the easy, it sounds simple, that's hard to do. And, and I think that if you, but, but it is doable, right? I'm not, I don't want to push back yeah. against it because I believe in it as well. Um, but I think that when you're talking about value work, I think one of the other problems is that um, how do you sell value work and that kind of change to parents sometimes when you're talking through it? Because a lot of times people come into a school and they want to make a quick change. They want to make like a showpiece, a big rollout that says, hey, we've made this change that kind of, um, you know, look what we've done. But I, 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 at the same time, I believe with you, I believe you that you need to have the vision and the core beliefs together. Um, I, I just don't think people are too far apart when it yeah. comes to what we value. Yeah. I mean, I think I've talked a lot to parents and teachers, you know, and kids even, and, and said, what do, you, what do you want most out of this experience? And they all pretty much say the same, th same stuff. 
I want my kid to really enjoy it. I want my kid to love learning. I want my child to be curious, to be creative. I want my, my kid to do good work in the world. I mean, very rarely does the first thing out of a parent's mouth go, I want my kid to get a 4.0. <laughs> I mean, that, that comes up. I mean, yeah. it, and it is a concern and it is, but I don't even think that's a value. I mean, when you're talking about values, but here's the other thing too, right? So uh, I'll drop another title, two more titles really fast. So two great books that um, have made me think a lot this year, one by a guy by the name of David Gleason, who wrote a book called At What Cost? And really, really briefly, he just interviewed hundreds of educators because he was a school psychologist and has kids coming to him and they are talking about anxiety and depression and, and stress and suicide. And, you know, we all know that there is now this huge social, socio-emotional learning aspect of what we're doing because kids are under lots of stress, whether that's coming from school or other places or whatever else. But so he just went to educators and he said, what do you want for your kids? And they all said the same things. We want them to be happy. We want them to be healthy. We want them to enjoy life. We want them to all these things. And then he said, well, what gets in the way of that? And they all said, well, we put too much emphasis on college. We, we wind them up with grades. We sleep deprive them. We get them up to, for school at 730 in the morning, even though all the research shows that basically adolescent brains don't turn on until like 830 or 9 o'clock. So they freely kind of admit that much of what they actually do in schools does not comport to the values they hold for kids, to their deepest commitments to kids. And he calls this thing the bind. He says, you know, we're in this bind because if we stop doing the things that we know don't meet our commitments to kids, then we're afraid that we won't see, be seen as rigorous or we mm -hmm. won't, you know what I mean? It's our own sense, or it's our, the commitments to ourselves that really, we really hold in higher regard than the commitments to kids. And that's a tough thing to hear. Yeah. But again, most people, when they hear it, they kind of go, oh, yeah. You're right. So anyway, the other title really fast is a book called uh, Immunity to Change by Robert Kagan. And that's where David's work kind of came out of. And that's a really interesting book that basically says something along the lines of, and I'm going to mess up the, the kind of short quote on it, but um, just understand that whenever you are trying, driving to make change, there is something driving you in that process. And you have to identify what that is first. What are the motivations? What are the commitments that we have to ourselves before we then get into the change piece? Because that's where the immunity comes from. Change, we are immune to change because of our own commitments. Mm -hmm. And so until we start dealing with those things and get them out of the way, it's very difficult to actually roll change out in our lives. It's interesting that... Uh a very small percentage of everything we've been talking about this morning has anything to do with with technology or educational technology. This right. is about ideas. This is about values and practice and aligning um, your beliefs to what your practice looks like. And how does that tie into assessment? But I, what I am interested in, though, because this is primary, a lot of the work that Sean and I do is around educational technology and like devices are being thrown into schools. And now what? And the typical process we see is purchase large scale devices, uh, you know, a, a high percentage of devices. And I'm sure you see this, drop them into schools 
and then kind of cross your fingers and then later determine what the purpose is. I never, I just so you know, I, ne I never see that. Just so you know. <laughs> <laughs> sure. So a lot of, I don't know what you're talking about. <laughs> so a lot of the kind of, you know, Sean and I were both history teachers. And when I first got started and I got my hands on some, you know, technology and got some old laptops and, and you know, desktops set up in my classroom, I started to develop this idea. And a lot of it was based on the work and the writing that you were doing around, you know, this access to information and there's an abundance of access now and, it, you know, information is a controlled and therefore the role of the teacher is shifting and what are the implications for the kinds of work that kids can be doing and the things that we should have them aware of. And as, as a kind of like baseline, I just wanted my freshmen as they left my classroom to just have kind of like these basic skills of I can publish text, audio and video to the web because that might be more critical than anything we're going to learn about in my class. And I'm a history teacher, and that stuff is really important to me. So I'm wondering if you could speak to what, what you think the role of technology in a classroom should be, um, because it is driving a significant amount of change in society. It's driving change in schools. But you know, what, would you, what do you think that should look like? Well, look, I mean, the closer we can get technology in the classroom to be aligned with the use of technology outside of the classroom, the better, I think, because obviously we want to prepare kids for the lives they're going to lead and they're going to carry devices around with them, most of them. And um, those, the, the ways that they use those devices are going to be constantly changing. Um, the learning environments or the social environments, I think, are going to be increasingly complex, as you can see over the last year or so, or a couple of years now. Um, you know, a lot of the uh, a lot of the big social media spaces now are under duress because they're coming to the realization that they can't really control the beast that they've created. <laughs> but you know, so it's like, so are we just going to send kids out into the world with technology and cross our fingers and hope they you know hope they make it okay and survive? I, I think that that's a horrible response and, and a horrible way of thinking about it. Um, we need to use technology in classrooms in ways that kids use technology outside of classrooms. I'll go back to what I said before too. I think that um, anytime we give a kid a device or anytime we allow a child to use a device in a classroom, it should be in the service of something that they want to learn about and and or create or connect you know i mean um it's about agency and we have to help kids understand how to use that agency as productively as they possibly can um right now it's basically you know go go to google and look something up and hand in your paper by eleven fifty nine p.m right because um, we're, we're not using technology to service their learning needs. We're using technology primarily to service our teaching needs. So, um, you know, that's the biggest shift, but again, that's cultural. And I'll, I'll just say it again too, that why would we buy any device, whether it's an iPad, a Chromebook or whatever, if we're not funneling it through our belief system? If we believe the kids learn most powerfully and deeply when they're pursuing things that questions that matter to them, then we should be giving them devices that allow them to pursue questions that matter to them. And you know what I mean? So you're right that most places we just kind of throw technology out there. We take pretty pictures, post them on the website, collect data. And, but then we get into what Audrey talks about too, you know, and that is we surveil them. And now, you know, we have, we're talking about bringing cameras into classrooms where we can tell whether or not kids are engaged 
FDA, mm-hmm. right? I mean, it's, it's so ridiculously patently stupid on its face to, to even think about creating environments where we expect kids to learn anything when they're constantly being watched, when they're constantly having data collected on them. It doesn't make any sense. goes back to that common sense thing again. So, I mean, you know, does, it, does technology have a role to play in the classroom? Yeah, absolutely. But um, my argument will always be that its role is in service of the learner. Um, if it's not playing a role that, that um, and I, I, I hesitate to use the word empowers, but for the lack of a better word right now, um, empowers learners to learn more deeply um, and to do more interesting things, to amplify um, you know, what it is that we're discussing or doing in classrooms. Um, save your money if we're not going to do that. You know, just right. seriously save it. It was funny. Um, what a, a post Seth Godin had up the other day was about how technology, like the convenience of technology can lead us down this kind of like inconvenient experience of exploring things deeply. And that's what it could look like. I thought it was a nice way to quickly summarize um, what tech, what the role could look like in schools, but oftentimes what it doesn't look like. And that idea that it it's in the service of teaching, which is often around efficiency, grading, um, collecting information, proving that you covered content as opposed yeah. to having kids explore passionately and, and develop their own interests. I'm caught up a lot now in the, I don't know if you listen to his work at all, but um, like Gary Vaynerchuk's entrepreneur kind of perspective in this. Yeah. I mean, it might be a bit extreme, but even just to think about our um, students even aware that they can create a living create a role for themselves, create an audience with technology. And I think we're kind of ignoring that whole perspective of what it could look like. Right. Do you know Don Wetrick? Oh, yeah. And listen to his episode where Gary was on. Absolutely. So Don's doing great work around that, you know. Right. Um, And I think that he's he's a great model for the ways that we think about the use of technology in classrooms. It is to extend the classroom walls for kids. Those kids that he's working with are pursuing things that matter to them, that they care about, that they want to build, that they the problems that they want to solve, questions that they want to have. That's technology becomes uh, the vehicle for them to do that. Um, and that's where technology gets really interesting. And, and that's where it gets pretty profound. And, it, and yet it also then threatens the role of the teacher who goes, wait a minute, 10, 15 years ago, my role yeah. was this and I was really good at it. And now my role is drastically going to shift and look different. Right. It absolutely does. And that's why you need a culture that's built on a belief system. Right. Right. Exactly. <laughs> it helps people understand that this is the moment that we live in. Yeah. And this, you know, welcome to it. Most people didn't sign up for this. And I get that. But it's professionally. Um, malpractice to not continue to evolve as professionals for a moment that is drastically different from the one that schools were built for. Yeah. So, you know, I mean, I'm sorry. I mean, you know, we can, I, I totally understand people's angst and their emotions around it. And it is a grieving process. Um, And it is, it is a very, very difficult thing to do. I get it. But, you know, we can't we can't be okay with people standing pat because it doesn't feel good to change i mean sorry you know right. that's that's not that's it's not going to roll professionally acceptable we would not expect that 
we wouldn't accept that in any other people, you know, professionals in our lives. You know, I mean, if you go to a doctor and a doctor says, yeah, well, you know, I really haven't cracked a book in 10 years. So I think that this is, we'd be like, what are you talking about? It's funny that you say that because I was listening to a, a podcast yesterday. I'm a bit addicted to podcasts, but um, <laughs> it's uh, Intelligence Matters. And it's by a guy who's a former head of the CIA. And his, his guest was um, an FBI agent who said, exactly the same thing that you're saying what intelligence looks like traditionally can't sit still because you know liking the old model is not going to roll back the changes that exist in this world right and that we have to do a a better job of mapping out what those changes actually are for the people who may not be following them as well because there's this possibility that there's teachers who don't see all that change happening around them and 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 you know, that's a, a challenge for leadership was what he was saying within the intelligence community, but also within education is to map that out and to identify these changes that are happening to make people aware so that within them, they can understand what right. their personal responsibility really is. And just really fast getting back to that question about technology in the classroom. Again, you cannot be literate in this world if you're not using technology. Yeah, you simply cannot be literate. You're not, you know, and, and I think that um, literacy to me as a former English teacher is this very interesting moving target right now that by and large, I, I don't think in education we're thinking hard enough about. It's funny that you mentioned that. To me, that aligns exactly with this idea of defining what learning looks like, defining today what literacy looks like with changing platforms and you know, anything that emerges today, it might be around, it might not, it'll probably shift and change. So that definition has to change constantly. I've been, it was fun, I, I posed a question out there and Scott McLeod replied really quickly and was like, this is what I think it means. And the language he added to the end of it was um, in this idea of the, the, like the dominant means of communications in that time or in that day, which is going to shift on a pretty quick basis today. Which is, which is why if you're not a learner, good luck. Right. Right. <laughs> you know, there's, there's not, no one, no one does a Twitter workshop any longer. No one's, no kid has ever taken a Fortnite workshop. Right? <laughs> <laughs> and it's like, if we're in the mindset, if we're in the mindset that we're going to wait for the workshop to figure out how to use the technology to, you know what I'm saying? That's, we're, we're just going to be totally lost and we're not going to be literate. So the literacy is around learning more than anything else to be literate as literacy changes, right? Yeah. And, and that's the, like, a, you know, that Papper quote from before, it's the only competitive skill right now. So. Yeah. One of, the, one of the aspects of our project is that we're talking to people in the work world, people who are in hiring and talking about the skills that they're looking for and like the nature of their work. And it's really been surprising because one of our, uh, one of our guests said, I would never hire a young person who couldn't effectively use social media because we need them to teach people who are unfamiliar with it how to use that social media so we can leverage it for our business it's absolutely essential and it it is like a literacy that they must possess and it just it makes so much sense but it also was a little bit of a shock when we actually heard someone who was hiring saying those things right now welcome to the modern world it's not that's not a world that's not a change that's coming that's a change that's here and it's been here for a while yeah it's passed us by in many ways yes and and that's the that's the real concern, you know? And just, again, really briefly, you know, when you ask the role of the teacher, I think the other role of the teacher is not only, well, is to be a learner in that respect, too, to learn from kids, to, you know, um, find wherever, wh- whatever source or person or 
you know, re- like uh, 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 whatever, I can't even talk, but you know what I'm saying. I mean, absolutely, constantly, yeah. constantly yeah. looking for ways to learn. Yeah. Hey, uh, Will, so we have had you on for quite some time. We've had a thorough conversation. Are you ready to shift to our All right, here we go. lighthearted fair? Here we go. This, is this so, like rapid fire, I hope? Cause, no, it's, no, this, it's, this it's like, more than that. You will, you will succeed okay. at this. So we, we typically do ask, so like, what are you reading lately? But since you gave us about eight titles to read, which I now have to go get all of them. Um, I'm going to the library this afternoon. Yeah, my question for you would be, what's the album or artist that you've been listening to or most interested in these days? Ah, that's interesting. Um, I don't know. I'm pretty boring when it comes to that stuff, but um, I, I listen to a lot of John Mayer and, you know, adult album rock like that so oh, that's okay he's on constant constant rotation in my kitchen basically all day long yeah. so we'll take it no, sure up. okay ready tell us about the first time you ever rode an adult roller coaster um well i don't know if it was a roller coaster but it was actually with my dad who my my um weekend dad i should say and we went to some carnival and it was one of those things where it was one of the baskets that you get in that kind of rolls around as the whole wheel turns around and um the one thing i remember is just getting stuck at the top upside down and all of the money and change from his pocket just falling out onto the ground and people running over and getting <laughs> running away so yeah that would be the one that i have the one memory that i have that's fantastic um and then the last one and we asked this one of audrey as well and got an interesting response what's sure. your um your fondest memory of like your childhood toy Wow. Her, to um, give you some inspiration, hers was a speak and spell. And G.I. Joe's. Yeah. So uh, I'm having trouble remembering toys that I had as a child. Um, that's how old I am. Um, so it's going to be, this is going to be a weird answer, but um, actually my, my grandfather, who was Swedish when I was uh, probably about four or five years old, created a cardboard box train for me. And um, so basically I, I had like a, some type of tricycle or something at the, at the front of it that I pedaled around, but I was dragging boxes full of my stuff all around the house <laughs> using this like train thing. And I, I just thought, yeah, that's the one thing that comes to my mind. I'm sure I had other, I had other uh, uh, toys that I used, but anyway, that's what comes to mind. That's great stuff. Hey, well, thank you so much for joining yeah, us. My pleasure. And uh, we really appreciate the conversation and maybe we'll check in again soon sometime. That'd be great. All right, thank you for well. all the books because quite, quite honestly, I'm literally going to the library as soon as this is over. <laughs> well, I, can, I can give you more if you want. You know, but just let me know. you know what? I will hit you up on Twitter because I feel like... Have, seriously, do you have our white paper, the eight books that you have to read? We, we will go get it now. <laughs> yeah, go find it. All right. The eight books you have to read. Yeah, it's, it's like eight, eight books for modern learners that um, you have to read now or something like that. But anyway. Great. You know we'll, we will make sure to add that at the end of the podcast so that everyone can out there. And if you can't find it, let me know. I'll send you a link. Right. Thank you so Cheers, much. Guys. Thanks. Well, take it easy. Bye. So we've been thinking is sponsored by the EdTech Teacher Summit. Join EdTech Teacher in Boston November 5th through the 7th. Featuring keynote speaker Dr. Diana Howard, whose career focuses on intelligent technologies that must adapt to and function within a human-centered world. For more information or to register for the conference, please go to ettsummit.org.